You may not be familiar with the term location intelligence, but you use it every day. It's the basis of your GPS navigation and much more. But done right, it can be a valuable tool for resilience professionals to massively increase your program's value. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 75 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by Alex Martinick, and we're talking about how location data can be leveraged to enhance your risk and resilience programs and even provide your organization with competitive advantage. Alex discusses the value of sharing important data, but not using our own jargon, instead speaking in terms that show business value. The Resilient Journey is now ad-free, so be sure to give some love to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Let's start with your background and tell us about your current role. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So my name is Alex Martinick. I am the industry practice lead for financial services, insurance, and business resilience here at Esri uh, in Southern California. So really what I do is I help uh, act as an internal liaison between our product teams, our marketing teams, our sales teams, and our user community. What I want to make sure is what we do is we build technology, we market technology, we, we really go to market with things that empower those users, really uh, help them advance their mission, whether it's in the security space, the resilience space, or within traditional business functions. It, and it sounds like an interesting role, and we want to kind of leverage some of your expertise here. So we want to talk about location intelligence. We want to talk about the impact that that's having on the C-suite. But before we can talk about that, we should probably establish, well, what do we mean when we talk about location intelligence? Yeah. And the term aside, because location intelligence might sound like a, like a, like a scary word, like a, you don't understand. We all use location intelligence in our day-to-day life, whether or not we realize it. Uh, I just want you to think about, especially in the, the pre-COVID times, when you wake up in the morning, you start to make impossibly complex decisions, almost intuitively, that would take uh, computers days, if not weeks, to figure out. You know, I need to wake up at this time and get ready and be ready by this time. If I'm going to head on the road, I know what traffic is going to be like to get in the office by nine o'clock. If you add in any other variables like stopping for breakfast, you have that context. I know that to get coffee, I need six, seven minutes. If you ask a computer to do this, even uh, chat GPT, there's all this buzz around it. You know, right. When do I need to leave so I can do all of these things? It would be almost impossible to understand it without a geospatial filter. So location intelligence is leveraging uh, spatial data, spatial methodology, and geospatial tools to integrate, contextualize, and really add actionable insights to data. So we talk a little bit about this spatial intelligence and location intelligence and so forth, and that seems very theoretical. Let's move more towards practical. What are some practical examples of how we would use location intelligence? What's wonderful is that geography is is everywhere. And uh, you know, I don't mean that facetiously. Literally every decision we make, whether in our personal lives or, or in business, it happens somewhere, a place of space and time. So location intelligence is applied through really every facet of our business world and our government. Our, our reach at Esri is across uh, most national governments. We have over 75% penetration into the Fortune 1000. Uh, and it really, it's just, if you can imagine a use case with a, a complex business problem, location has some element to it. But 
again, not to make this a complete COVID-19 discussion. It's been three years. I know all of us have been through it. We may not want to talk about it, but an amazing use case that I'm sure you're familiar with, but may not be familiar that it was location intelligence, was the Johns Hopkins COVID-19 dashboard. You, you may have seen this. This popped up about three years ago. It's right. about to be retired this month, which is a great sign for all of us that it's no longer needed. But within a matter of weeks, we saw this dashboard emerge utilizing Esri technology, and it, it, it really just went, every media outlet was picking it up. Uh, almost every local county government here in the United States was building their own version of it. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing the Johns Hopkins dashboard. That was location intelligence. It's all the basic understanding of what is it I need to know based on this virus? You may not need to have been an a, a epidemiologist, a virologist, but you wanted to know, how is the virus's spread impacting my community? And it communicated it so effectively and clearly, had over a trillion views in just three years, right? Yeah, and that's a great example uh, because everybody's familiar with it. It was my screen that was up all the time, particularly in those early days, as we started to watch the virus progress uh, out of Asia. Then, you know, we started to watch it in North America. And it's like, I think it was, wasn't it like the Seattle area or something like that was initially one of the hot spots? And we're starting to see more and more red on the map, right? It's the graphic representation of that location data. But also the ability to go back in time to as new data became available mm. to append and contextualize was Seattle the early hotspot? Or were there other sources of data that weren't utilized in the beginning? So I know that there was wastewater sampling in San Diego County in California that showed that there would have been positive tests had the test been available at an earlier point in time to show that there was spread there. And that's where location intelligence is valuable. Again, it's contextualizing uh, many disparate streams of data to try to find the single source of truth. Now, on the same subject of that dashboard, how that applied to businesses and where that is continuing to still impact not only the risk and resilience space, but maybe what we can talk about today in terms of increasing the influence of that resilience officer is how that dashboard was utilized by some businesses, especially here in the US. Uh, so I helped found our corporate security team back in 2017. Originally, I was on our defense and intelligence teams. And we've been doing a lot of these workflows for you know, fusion centers for several decades. And we started to put those same capabilities on the front lines for business, for corporate security teams, business resilience teams, continuity officers. And what we found during COVID was that one chief security officer for this retailer, he took that dashboard into their GSOC, right? They wanted to put it up on the big board. They wanted to see how is it impacting our operations from a duty of care? Where do we need to know that our employees may get sick? But see, this security officer started to see, yeah, are there any other variables that we can start to add to maybe find some hidden patterns, hidden connections? And you know, he went on this internal roadshow through the organization and found that, yes, there were significant correlations between uh, demand for their products and services and the spread of the virus. And he came back to us to say, hey, everyone is in the same boat here, but we're all at a different point in time in the timeline of the spread of this virus. That's 100% based on geography. So they were able to work alongside their traditional business development teams, their store operation teams, and their merchandising supply chain managers to say, we need to ensure that when we see these early indicators, we're moving products and services as quickly and safely as possible to meet those market demands. Their revenue increased significantly during that quarter. And that was one of the first times I saw the GSOC funneling actionable business intelligence to not only help safety and security, 
but driving business growth. It was incredible to see. And, and that's really interesting because what we did was we started off with the theoretical of, okay, what is location intelligence? And we've gotten into some practical examples of it, practical use of it. But now I know you're a big advocate of empowering risk and continuity professionals to be more influential with the C-suite. One of the things that really drove me through the pandemic and since is people have come to me, my colleagues have come to me and they've said, I, I don't have the confidence of my leadership team. My top executives don't see any value in what we're bringing to the table. And I think that one of the things that we can do much better is to leverage tools like this, turning data into information and then leveraging that information to become knowledge and then use that you know, to, to grow the business, as you said. So let's talk about ways that we, either in business continuity or for our colleagues right next to us in the adjacent discipline of enterprise security risk management, how can we practically use this data to get the attention of those top executives? Yeah, I believe that it comes down to having a, a real conversation, first and foremost, about what we mean when we talk about business resilience. And, you know, again, right before the pandemic, there was a lot of skepticism of what resilience was. And part of the problem was that I saw these operational definitions that business resilience was one thing. Business yeah. resilience is not one thing. It's not a single strategy. It's a series of overlapping and complementary workflows that increase the longevity of a brand. And that's the part we need to focus on here. What is the purpose of business continuity planning, corporate security, risk management? I mean, we can look at the value of a GSOC from safety and security, but these are business functions, all of it. And I think that our community has lost sight that as business functions, we have to look at that main purpose to drive business value and accelerate business growth. And so for too long, corporate security, risk management, continuity planning, We've been cost centers. We've kind of been in the corner in our little silo. Uh, we've been arguing over what's a 6-4 versus a 6-5. And meanwhile, the C-suite has lost sight that we're not just a must-have for insurance and compliance. We drive significant value. 500,000 small businesses went bankrupt in the United States in the first year of the pandemic. However, a series of larger retailers were posting record-breaking revenues because they had risk management, they had continuity plan, they had supply chain resilience. And that's what we're looking on. Moving out of COVID, climate change. That is the next great existential crisis facing businesses. The disruptions of climate change won't just magically manifest in 2050. We're seeing this now. So first, we need to have that conversation of why we are a competitive advantage, not a cost center. We're, we're gonna talk about competitive advantage here in a minute, I want to go back to some more practical tools, some things that we might be able to use. So for example, um, they they could be in the planning side, but they could also be in the response side. So I know there's tools out there, for example, that are monitoring threats uh, and sending alerts to people. And that's all based on uh, location intelligence. Uh, if we have better processes in place to capture those alerts, we can respond quicker and responding quicker makes us more resilient. So there's one practical use uh, of it. Um, and then we also get into mass notification. Uh, we can uh, do uh, geo-targeting based on 
uh, where the incident is and where our people are. So uh, talk about how some of that can be leveraged. Yeah, let me utilize one of the best examples I've seen. I, I can't say who they are, but they're doing things incredibly well that when you're looking at their resilience strategy, it's it's convergence theory coming in and it's at its wonderful. For those who are unfamiliar convergence theory, it's integrating the disparate risk disciplines in under a chief resilience officer who's more of a consultant to the C-suite, really an advisor about the risk and why the risk has that business impact, utilizing enterprise security risk management as a framework. When you walk in to where these teams are housed, they're all co-located. Of course, the GSOC is front and center. You got the big board there. You have all of the threat assessments, all the alerts popping up. They're integrating not only just the feeds, whoever they're using, it's also the value of those facilities, the number of employees, the insured value. All of those are ready to go. And uh, it's, it's a single source of truth. The GSOC funnels all of those location insights to the threat assessment teams, to the business continuity planners, to, to the intelligence teams, and they're all working off of the, the same sheet of music. And that's where location intelligence isn't just a product. It's an underlying data framework to contextualize all of that information so you don't have that asymmetric information uh, type of issue. There's no adverse uh, risk management that's happening or asymmetric risk management. Um, where this goes one step further for a lot of companies is now those same insights are being used for the same market planning and traditional business functions, whether it's site suitability analysis or looking at direct foreign investments. Uh, I don't really have a traditional background in this space, and that's where I think I'm valuable because we're not facing the same traditional threats. Uh, I have a background in uh, national cybersecurity studies, right? Yep. But yep. I also have significant time in an MBA in finance. So when I'm looking at a direct foreign investment for a manufacturing facility, I want to understand more than just the financial risks, the interest rate risks and the currency risks. Start looking at what are the physical risks, because if you can't utilize that facility, the value is zero right away. So if you're looking at climate change, you're looking at a catastrophic event, you can lose your investment almost immediately, more than any other financial factor. I completely agree with you when you said that having a non-traditional background is valuable uh, because what it does is it gives you, it's more than just a fresh set of eyes. It's a whole new perspective on things. And to be able to leverage this intelligence and looking at it from a different perspective, a different angle uh, will change the results. One of the things that you're describing uh, by leveraging all of this information, uh, you know, traditional old fashioned, if you will, business continuity was very plain vanilla. Uh, if we were putting it in terms of transportation, it would be like an old bicycle. Uh, we collect business impact analysis data. We talk about understanding the impact to the organization and we write a responsive plan. And I'll put responsive in air quotes. It might not even be that responsive. Now what we're talking about is leveraging real-time intelligence uh, to make us more resilient. And I'm going to go back to something you said earlier when you said it's overlapping strategies. This is not for the faint of heart. This is not for the lazy. And it is not for people who aren't interested in rolling their sleeves up and, and leveraging all of this different type of information, this, this intelligence that's out there. Is it? Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. You have to have vision for the company and where you want to be 
in 10, 20, and 30 years. And I, I can fully empathize that part of the issue is when we're talking about the C-suite. And that's where I play again between the highly technical and the C-suite. The average tenure of a CEO or executive is around eight years, 10-ish if you're within financial services. If they're reporting on a quarterly basis, are they looking at 2050? No, they really aren't. They want to spend money now that's going to make money now. But there are a select group of companies that have been around because of the longevity of their brand and their, their foresight to see the disruptions wherever they may be. And one is AT&T. And I want to talk about how they use this because it's not just the response. It's, again, the overlapping of before, during, and after any crisis. So AT&T partnered with Argonne National Labs. And they utilized Esri technology to look at a series of major perils in the United States. And they map those down to grid sizes of 30 meter resolution, meaning that for every 100 by 100 piece of space here in the United States, they assigned a complex risk score for what is the wildfire risk? What's the drought risk? What is the uh, flooding risk? A whole series of these perils. Then they overlaid a digital twin of their entire infrastructure all of the millions, if not billions of miles of lines, all of the nodes, and they started to assess where does the risk score now overlap and correlate to our existing infrastructure? And where is it we can proactively spend money now to harden assets so they're better prepared for the risks they're gonna face? So if we're talking about climate change and you're using four of the major models, best case and worst case, you can start to see, well, if we put a little bit of money here, that asset now has a 60% uh, greater chance of surviving the risks they are likely to face. This isn't a big data problem. This is a impossible data problem, but they did it and they are proactively investing towards 2050. But what's the value of that? Again, if you're the CEO and you know your tenure is going to be long up, you know that your brand value in 50 years is going to be uh, so much higher than your competition because you'll stay online when others can't. Really, when we look at that, that brand value has been motivating a lot of executives to say, this is why we're doing it. This is why we're spending today's money to avoid tomorrow's crises. But additional to that is the real-time threat monitoring on top of that. So all of their existing continuity planners and risk uh, assessment teams, they're looking at the live model and they know what the risk is based on the severity of the storms that they're looking at or the severity of the crises. So it's no longer just, well, we have a high-valued asset. They know what the asset is. They know the risk and they know how those types of crises are going to impact that node. And it doesn't have to be climate change. I mean, the whole world is also under the threat of cybersecurity threats and, and attacks and things like that. Or it could be, um, you know, any other, whatever threat is facing your organization to be able to uh, leverage multiple data points like this uh, really does lead to an advantage. One of the things that you implied earlier was that people are sort of tired of the old approach to risk management, arguing whether something is a 6.4 level risk or whether it's a 6.5. And I have clients who have said that to me. We've, we're taking a different approach on this because we're tired of arguing over that. But it's important, isn't it, to address threats, even if they have lower probability, particularly if they have high impact uh, capability. So you want to talk a little bit about those high impact threats? Yeah, and, and I'll be clear here. We still need to have those methodologies in place in order for us as the risk professionals to know what we're up against. 
I think where location intelligence is a natural lens to communicate with the C-suite is that we're able to detach the jargon and the methodologies and show the single source of truth in an intuitive way. So if I'm speaking with an executive who doesn't have a risk background, but we're trying to show you the business value, right? We right. don't have to rely on the terminology. They're not going to be reading our, I, I, my background is in all source intelligence analysis. I know that if I wrote an eight page report, the first page is what's being read, right? The executive summary is there for the executives. But when you're able to display something in a more dynamic fashion, so this is where location intelligence has that next level value versus uh, traditional tabular reports or other business intelligence tools. When you show something through a geographic lens, you understand it at a different level. And we've all been there. When you open up a digital map, whether it's Google, whether it's Bing, whether it's Esri technology, what was the first thing you did when you opened up uh, 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 that map, that overhead satellite view? Well, I wanted to look for my home or, or somewhere that I was familiar with. Exactly. <laughs> it's because we all understand our world around us through the context of location. I got to see uh, former Governor Martin O'Malley speak in 2015, where he talked about their investment in Esri and, and GIS and location intelligence to, to manage all of their infrastructure and all of the assets from the state. He said, it's the whole thing. Show me my house. Show me what's important to me. And that's where I say location intelligence helps to shift the narrative. So we're not seen as that cost center anymore. We're able to say, here's the risks overlapping that on top of here is where you have your business operations. Here's your supply chains. Here's your key facilities. Here's how it will impact the bottom line. That's the next step of the conversation. I think we oftentimes miss the mark on. I want to get to that bottom line and that competitive uh, advantage in just a second, but I also want to encourage my colleagues in business continuity, resilience, crisis management to pay attention to something, Alex, that you just said, uh, and that is we don't have to, nor should we be communicating to executives using our jargon. We don't have to make sure that the the CFO understands the difference between operational resilience and business continuity. What they need to understand is that we can communicate to them on their terms. So what keeps them up at night? What are they worried about? And how can the tools that we use allow them to sleep better at night and help mitigate those risks? Exactly. And I know that some people listening are going to potentially cringe like, oh, he said this, but it's actually, and, and I know that I even confuse it and I've been in this space for over eight years. And that's where, again, yeah. it, what is the value of jargon for the sake of jargon? Now, when we're talking about the complex, like uh, with the insurance background, when I'm speaking with actuaries and they have their, their ability to balance a portfolio of, of, yes, your methodology, all of that is going to be sound. I'm not going to interfere. But when I'm relaying that to a chief underwriting officer, or chief risk officer, or chief claims officer, I need to utilize the same source of truth, but communicate it in the value that they need. If I'm speaking to an underwriter, they're looking at how to write new business and avoid adverse risk selection. I'm working with a claims officer. They want to optimize where existing policies are and know the risk that was, you know, what policies and what households were likely impacted. There are different conversations stemming from that same area, but I can't take the actuarial science to those groups. And that's for location. I'm not saying you're, you're cherry picking data. I'm saying you're highlighting and communicating what's of value to the stakeholder. Yeah, I like to use the word leveraging. And I love you referenced earlier the chief resilience officer uh, and, and that role being a consultant to the C-suite. I, I love that concept. So it's one thing to talk about using this 
information and these tools to maybe work through a, a disruptive event. But it's another thing entirely, isn't it, to be thinking about gaining competitive advantage by using this. How can we take that to the next level so that we're helping our organizations have that competitive advantage? A lot of car lots, a lot of the uh, car lots around me are empty. And yeah. we're looking at trying to buy a new car. Yeah, you're looking at significant delays. And I've, I've been researching myself and I'm seeing no longer available for 2023 or 2024. I can't buy a certain car that I want. I won't say whom to protect that company and their brand. I can't buy the car I want until 2025. Mm. And that's caused used car prices to skyrocket because it's the only inventory. Right. There are still a couple groups out there though that have full lots in a consistent supply chain coming in. So if you need a new car, you're going to be going to who can get you that car. COVID was the same way. Brand loyalty goes out the window when necessity is knocking at the door. So where's the competitive advantage? I, I, I want to highlight climate change here because I, I firmly believe that there's no greater risk facing businesses today than climate change and all of the impacts. Again, it's not one thing. It'll be resource scarcity. It'll be more severe and catastrophic weather events. We've already seen supply chain disruption as a, disrupt, as a direct result of climate change. But let's look at you know, we're, we're talking about cars here. If you're a global automotive manufacturer and you're looking at direct foreign investments and you're looking at a globalized supply chain, wouldn't it behoove you to understand the risks and all of uh, their complexities that are impacting your supply chain? So one group we worked with in particular, they had a supply chain risk manager that was assessing the values to all their facilities, but they weren't looking at it from that, that spatial perspective. When they did, what they found was they had a very high-valued production facility in the Asia-Pacific area that was in direct risk to climate change for sea level rise. This was the only facility that made a particular part that, if it was knocked offline, would cause tens of millions of dollars of lost production potential almost daily, immediately if any type of severe weather event happened. Yep. But we also took things one step further. We started to overlay some of the non kinetic risks, political risk, economic yep. risk. What are the other types of impacts of climate change we need to look for, for workforce equity and workforce availability? If you have nobody to work in those facilities because they've been displaced by climate change, they become climate change refugees. Again, it's the same impact that your facility is not worth anything. So the groups right now that still have cars in the lots they're the groups that weren't relying too much on just-in-time delivery. They had some stockpiles. They were able to foresee supply chain disruptions. They knew that there was only so much lithium and iron and steel out there to build their, their, automo their automobiles. And they now have a competitive advantage. They're keeping them full. That's really interesting. And it could be any reason that would cause the disruption, but supply chain disruption, um, you know, if you're listening right now, think about your own organization. I guarantee you it's taking your sourcing teams much longer to get some of those critical components that they need. Very, very interesting stuff. Alex, how can people connect with you if they want to learn more about this? Well, I mean, uh, I'm always available on LinkedIn, especially for risk professionals. You have my name. Please come find me. I'm happy to have this conversation more. Uh, love talking about risk and love talking about business value. Also, please visit, you know, Esri.com. We have a, a global presence. Uh, we're always able to help. What really jumps out at me here, Alex, is that you're sort of this new face of risk. It, a lot of times people think of, of risk as being boring and necessary and, and not necessarily um, all of that uh, compelling. 
Uh, but the way you present it and the way you leverage information, it really transforms that into something that's quite compelling and something that we have to pay attention to. So thanks for taking the time to do this. It's been my pleasure to have you on the podcast. So thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Mark. I want to thank Alex Martinick for being my guest this week and talking to us about location intelligence and how we can leverage that data to improve our programs. A huge thanks, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. Look for some exciting things coming in the days ahead related to the Think Tank. Lots of good guests are in the queue, and we look forward to sharing their stories with you. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.